I want to begin today uh, by talking about uh, an experience I had when I worked at Starbucks. Uh, I graduated from seminary, and, and like happens in your life, life takes turns that you don't plan for. You end up in places you didn't plan on being, doing things you didn't plan on doing, and that was my story. I wish I would have had a photo of me wearing my green apron today, but I forgot to include that. Uh, but when I went to work for Starbucks, I, I got trained by this guy. His name is, is Lewis. And, um, and, and Lewis was just this incredible uh, barista. I, I knew from the first day that I was never going to be as good as he was. You meet somebody like that, and they're, just, they're so far above you. I, I, I'm just going to hope to get close. And uh, Louis or Luis, depending on the day, how you wanted to call him, he, he, would, he would, when you started working at Starbucks at our location, he was the trainer. He's 19 years old. He graduated from college, went to work for Starbucks. And he was just amazing at making connections with people. He'd remember names. He'd remember stories. He'd remember you by your drink when you walked in the store. And, and so he was my trainer. He taught me how to foam a perfect cappuccino, which I never fully achieved. And if you're a cappuccino drinker, you know that if you don't get that foam right, why even pay for the drink? And, and so uh, Luis was training me, and I, I wasn't always the best student. And I'll remember vividly one day, it was a really crazy day out on the floor, lots of people who were angry that they didn't get enough caramel in their extra caramel, caramel frappuccinos. And, and Luis and I got into it a little bit. There was some tension between us. We were kind of, I don't know, not, not fighting, but there was just some tension. And I remember when that rush ended, he pulled me to the side and he said, you know, dude, I don't know how it is at your church where you serve, because I was also working at a church at the time. He goes, but you've been bossing me around today. He's like, and you're not the boss. <laughs> I'm the boss. He didn't say it that way, but that's how, that's how the message I took. And so he said, hey, I, I'm training you. And you can't boss me around. And I, I drove home that day, if, if I'm really honest with you, pretty crushed. Because the last word I wanted anybody to describe me as, even today, the last word I want somebody to describe me as is bossy. Even if in some places I do have that role. And what Luis did that day, no matter how crushed I was, is he gave me a gift. He pointed out my blind spot. Now, when you're on the receiving end of that kind of conversation, it doesn't feel like a gift. It doesn't feel like Christmas morning. It doesn't feel like your birthday. It doesn't look like a package with a nice bow on it and something inside that you want. But when somebody points out your blind spot to you, they give you a gift. Because they answer the question that helps you gain self-awareness. You know that self-awareness is the leading indicator of success for a CEO today? A study was done of companies from 50 million to 5 billion. And the number one way that study knew that leader was going to be a success was self-awareness. The ability to see what's in one's blind spots. And we all have blind spots you have them today, and I have them today. And if you don't know what your blind spot is, and you don't have somebody like Luis in your life to tell you, then what you can do is you can ask somebody this question. Now, before I tell you this question, this is a scary question. You should be scared right now. 
your heart should be beating a little bit faster. You should be worried a little bit. Because this question is the scariest question you can ask somebody. Are you ready? The question is this. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Ooh. What's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be married to me? What's it like to be my parents? What's it like to have me as a parent? What's it like to be my boss? What's it like to have me as your boss? What's it like to be led by me? What's it like to be my leader? What's it like to be my friend? What's it like to be my neighbor? What's it like to be my coworker? This question and all the ones that come out of it, what's it like to be on the other side of me? If you get someone who's willing to give you the gift of honesty, you'll discover what's in your blind spot. If you have the courage to ask. See, we're in this series right now talking about friendships. How do we grow closer together in a world that's driving us apart And I have this hunch that many of us have friendships that are capable of being incredible friendships. They could get there, but they're not there today. And so instead of starting out with a a big idea, I thought I'd follow the pattern of this question, which, by the way, doesn't originate with me. It originates with a guy named Jeff Henderson. He's the first guy I ever heard ask this question. But the question that's going to frame up our discussion today isn't that question. It's this one. And it's your big question. It's on your handout if you want to fill in the blanks. What if the friendships we want are on the other side of conversations we've been unwilling to have? What if the friendships you want are possible? They're within reach, but they lay on the other side of the conversations you've been unwilling to have. There's that elephant in the room that neither one of you are going to talk about. And until you talk about it, that relationship's going to stay stuck. There's a, a, a thing in you that's holding the relationship back. It's a blind spot. And until you deal with it, the relationship will never move forward. Maybe both of you are discontent with the status of that friendship. But until you have the conversation about the dissatisfaction you both feel, the relationship is never going to move forward. Or maybe you're just going to keep having superficial conversations about the weather or sports or politics. Maybe if you're married, you're going to keep having all of your date nights be about the kids and the kids' schedule until the kids move out and you realize that you're married to a stranger. Maybe you're going to have the conversation that you both know you need to have, but you are both terrified to have. See, I think this is a question, but it's also a statement. I believe the friendships we want are within reach. But we have to have the conversations we've been unwilling to have up till now. And so today, we're going to talk about a passage in the Bible involving two people who had a terrifying conversation that changed both of their lives forever. And their names are David and Nathan. And their story is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, one of my blind spots this week is that I sent the wrong scripture passage in. And I didn't realize it until yesterday. So in your, your, your handout, it says 2 Samuel 17 and 18. That's wrong. That's me. That was my fault. 
We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which is the 10th book in the Bible if you're moving from the front. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to kind of set the scene for you. If you don't know the setup story to this conversation, it begins on a moonlit night. We met last week David and Jonathan, who were incredible friends. Jonathan and his dad Saul go to battle, and they die in the battle. And so David becomes king. 20 years after David was anointed king, he is appointed king, and he steps into that role. And David is the most successful military general in all of Israel's history. As he's leading underneath Saul's leadership, and as he becomes king, he wins battle after battle after battle after battle after battle, and the empire grows to its largest size. And typically what would happen is that the the army would come back in the winter, because there's no water. It's not safe for the army to be out. And then when the spring began and, and the snow would melt and there would be water, the army would go out to war. And David went out every year, except for one year. He stayed home. And so the army goes out and David stays home. He doesn't have Netflix. Doesn't have Amazon Prime. Can't binge something when he can't sleep. So he goes out in his balcony at night, and he's the king, so his house is bigger than everybody else's. So he looks down from his house into the courtyard of another family, a member of his royal guard, and he sees the wife of one of his soldiers, a woman named Bathsheba, bathing. And he decides that he likes what he sees, and he's the king. No one tells the king no. So he sends his men to go get Bathsheba, to bring him to his house, and they have an encounter. In that day, you would have never called it rape. You would have never called it sexual assault. But women couldn't vote. Their testimony didn't stand up in the court of law. I don't think she really had any options. So whatever you want to call it, I really don't think it was her choice. She goes back home. Uh, A message gets sent from Bathsheba to David a few weeks later. Surprise! I'm pregnant. So David has to figure out a plan. And so he decides that he's going to try to figure out how to get her husband, who's one of his royal guard, to come back to be with her so that it's her child, not his. The only problem is that Uriah's got more character in this moment than David does. He won't do it. And so David arranges a conspiracy to commit murder to put Uriah at the front of the army so that their enemies will kill him. So Uriah dies. And after a period that looked appropriate for others, for Bathsheba to mourn, she comes into David's house. What you may not know that I learned this week is not only is Uriah one of his royal guard, uh, her grandfather is one of David's closest advisors. But it didn't matter. At least to David. And the story gets picked up in 2 Samuel 12 where it says, the Lord sent Nathan, who is a prophet, to David. And Nathan came to David and said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he'd bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. Nathan said, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It's like a daughter to him. This was like a pet. 
and his children loved. Verse 4, it says, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. And then David didn't see what was coming next. Nathan said to David, you are the man. And this wasn't like a modern day, you're the man. This was no, you're the man in the story. Nathan goes on in verse 9. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? David, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In verse 13, we later read that David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's lots of other parts of this conversation that we could talk about today, but I wanted to hit those beats And one thing I wanted to say to you, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is that just because things are in the Bible do not mean they're good examples for us to follow. It's one of the reasons I like the Bible. Because it gives us the pure, unadulterated truth about people, even our heroes. David will later be described as a man after God's own heart. And yet we just watched him for sure commit conspiracy to murder, adultery, maybe even sexual assault. The Bible tells us again and again the descriptions of what happens, not the prescriptions. And as you read the Bible, you need to make sure that you know what's happening. Are you getting like an example? Hey, this is how you should live. Or are you getting the truth about how someone lived? If I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't tell you the story. Because it made David look bad. Because he was bad. But God knew that we needed that picture because all of us have either done what David's done or were capable of the same thing. And Nathan, somewhere along the way, decides that he has to have the conversation with David about what he's done. Can you imagine that? You're going to the king to tell him that you know what he's done and how wrong it is. He could kill you. With no recourse. And yet Nathan still goes and has the conversation. Anyway. I think a lot of us in our heart of hearts know that we need to have a conversation. To move a friendship forward. But there are things that are standing in the way. And I'll identify what I think are at least four of those barriers to having tough conversations. The first one, and I think it's maybe the biggest one, is just pure fear. Some of you know today the conversation you need to have in one of your friendships to move that friendship to where it's capable of going, but you're afraid. Say, Scott, what am I afraid of? Well, I think you're afraid that 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 conversation could change that friendship forever. You're afraid that you have too much to lose. You're afraid of how that person's going to respond. You're afraid that you're not going to say the right things. You're afraid that that conversation is not going to go the way that you think. You're afraid that the friendship that you have now that's not as it could be, is going to be lost anyway. And so you're afraid. Some of us, 
It isn't fear. It's, it's past experience. Some of us have had tough conversations and we don't ever want to have them ever again. Either someone came to us and told us a blind spot that we didn't want to hear and they did it in a way that permanently wounded us. Or we went to have a conversation with somebody that was a tough conversation and they didn't want to hear it. And so we're never doing it again. Or maybe you created the best plan that you could and went and it went nothing like your plan. And you're like, never doing that again. Maybe, maybe it's three. Maybe you feel inadequate. Maybe you say, Scott, I know I need to have this conversation. I know this relationship will never be what God intended for it to be if I don't have this conversation, but I don't feel like I have what it takes. I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like I'm good enough. My words never match what comes out with what I thought was in my head. I don't have what it takes. Somebody else needs to have this conversation, not me. Or maybe, just maybe, you're not having that conversation because there are easier options. It's just easier not to have the conversation. So you don't. Wherever you find something in your life that's been the way it's been for a long time, I promise you, there is a payoff. That's why you keep doing it. There's some payoff for you. People come to you and go, Scott, why is this person doing what they're doing? I go, well, there's some payoff. There's something good that's coming from it or else they wouldn't keep doing it. Maybe it's the easier route. Maybe it's the more comfortable route. Maybe you know the relationship could be better, but you're afraid of losing what you have. And so you go, it's easier to not have the conversation. But the relationship is never going to be what you hoped it could be until you have the conversation. Because the relationships we want are on the other side of conversations we're willing to have. And so I think David's conversation with Nathan is a great example of how to prepare for a conversation well. And so I want to share with you, I think, three questions to ask. If in your heart of hearts today you go, I know I need to have a conversation with a friend, or I know that there's a conversation keeping us from where we could go. And here's the first question I think you have to answer. One, have I heard from God? Have I heard from God? See, the passage begins in 2 Samuel 12, 1 with these words. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so Nathan came to David and said to him, and then he tells him that story. Nathan didn't go to David because he had nothing better to do on a Tuesday. He went to David because God sent him to David. Now I have to wonder, either no one knew what David had done, and God told Nathan, or a lot of people knew what David had done. And yet Nathan is the only one who went. Because who wants to tell the king that he's guilty of uh, some major felonies? Apparently not many people. That line was very short. And so Nathan goes because God sent him to go. And so if you're going to have a hard conversation with somebody, I think the first question you need to ask is, God, is this a conversation you want me to have with them? Now, I have to tell you, as a pastor, the number one question I get from people is, Scott, how do I hear from God? 
How do I know that what I'm hearing is what God's telling me? How do I know God's will for this area? How do I know? Do do you just hear some voice in your head that nobody else hears because you're a pastor? No. So how do I know? How do I hear from God? Well, nearly 20 years when I was a young teenager, 20 years ago, I first did a study called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And it stuck in my mind, the four ways that God speaks to us. Blackaby says that, the, that God uses the Bible, prayer, people, and circumstances. And God has never spoken to me the same way twice, but in the process of discovering whether I'm hearing from God, it often comes through one of these four veins. I'm reading the Bible, and for some reason, the verse I've read 470 times leaps off the page at me. Was that always there? And just suddenly it speaks to me. Or I'm praying and I get this strong, undeniable sense that just nags at me that I'm supposed to do something. Or God sends somebody to tell me something. Maybe it's somebody I know or somebody I don't. Something I'm listening to or reading and it just speaks to me. Or maybe just a circumstance. Part of why I'm here in Prescott is that God spoke through a circumstance. On a Wednesday... I got told that I wasn't going to get the job that I wanted. And on a Monday, Cornerstone called me. Felt like good timing, you know? God spoke through the circumstance. So first and foremost, you need to make sure that you've heard from God. Number two, have I checked my motives? Have I checked my motives? I almost made this, have I checked my heart? But I've watched too many John Christ comedy videos to do that. And if you don't know who John Christ is, just look him up on YouTube. I've given you an hour of joy today. You're welcome. Have I checked my motives? Because what you've discovered and what I've discovered is sometimes somebody comes to tell you the truth. And guess what? It's not because they love you. It's because they want to hurt you. So it's got that sounds a little bit cynical. No, it's just real life. Sometimes when we tell somebody a hard truth or have a hard conversation, it's not about us. It's about them. Sometimes you go, man, I really want to just let them have it and tell them what it's like to be on the other side of them. Because you love them? Or because you really want them to feel what you felt? So when you check your motive, you have to ask yourself, is this about me? Or is this about them? One thing you'll notice if you go back and read all of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is that Nathan is nowhere in the story. I mean, he's present in the story. He's talking, but this has nothing to do with Nathan. Nathan doesn't go, you know, David, I just have been so frustrated with your lack of personal morality and ethics. You are a terrible example for our nation, and I've always wanted you to get what's coming to you. No. There's none of Nathan in here. There is only a concern that he hears what God wants him to hear. That's it. And sometimes you may see what needs to be seen and you may be able to say what needs to be said, but because it would be more about you than about them, maybe you're not the right person to say it. You have to check your motives. And then three, you need to ask yourself, have I made a plan? 
Have I made a plan for how I'm going to have the conversation? Nathan had an incredible plan. This story, it's amazing. David didn't see it coming. Because if he walked in and said, King, yeah, I heard about this girl Bathsheba and this moonlight thing and Uriah. Like, what's the deal with that? David would have responded very differently. We're not told if God gave Nathan this idea of this lamb story, if he came up with it as his own. But here's what we know. David received the truth because of how Nathan said it. And so if you're going to have a high-stakes conversation with somebody that you love, where things could go wrong, and what you say and how you say it could permanently change that relationship, you need a plan. Now, some of us in this room, we are planners extraordinaire. You plan your vacations. You plan your days off. You, you have a to-do list for every day of the week. You're a planner. Others of you, you hate plans. You're spontaneous. You're a free spirit. You like to wing it. Others of you, you heard me say wing it and you got a cold sweat. (laughs) Regardless of your personality, here's what you need to know. Tough conversations are too important to have without a plan. And so when God speaks to your heart and he says, I think that conversation is one that needs to be had and I want you to say it, you need to come up with a plan. And part of what we wanted to do in this series, and especially today, is expose you to some examples of ways these kinds of topics have been navigated. And so I put together a list of people that I was going to invite to to work through these with me, who've experienced these things with me, because Sunday morning isn't a place to talk about theory. It's a place to talk about real life. And so I'm going to invite a friend on stage right now. His name is Clovis Barnett. Clovis, you want to join me? Give him a round of applause. Now, some of you may know Clovis as, uh, as the announcement guy. And while that is part of his job, uh, it is not his whole job. So Clovis's title is executive pastor. And uh, Clovis supervises the majority of our staff. He sits on our board of elders. And um, he is responsible for a lot of the day-to-day management of Cornerstone. A lot of his work is behind the scenes, and he doesn't wear a microphone as often as I do. Most of you don't know him as well as you know me, uh, but he plays an invaluable role. And when I came to visit Cornerstone in Prescott for the first time in May of 2016, the day that I met Cornerstone was key because I said, man, if this, and I, this, this guy and I don't have a good relationship, this is not going to work because we're going to have to spend a lot of time together. We're going to have to learn how to have hard conversations with one another. We're going to have to build trust and over the last two years, we've been having a lot of tough conversations, a lot of long conversations, hard conversations. We've raised our voice at one another. We've cried. He's driven me nuts and I've driven him nuts. And we've had to figure this stuff out. And so I said, I don't know anybody else that would be as good to talk about how to have tough conversations than somebody that I've been doing it with every day for the last two years. So Clovis, when it comes to tough conversations, how do you think people build the kind of relationship that can survive a tough conversation? Well, first, I just want to point out that I'm Nathan in this relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's David, okay. Just so Some everybody days. understands that uh, Some days. The, the role 
The role some days, that I play. Um, there's some days I'm Nathan, though. <laughs> and uh, second, this is a Baylor Bear hat, not a Chicago Bear hat, so just don't get, it, get confused. Um, so, yeah, in terms of building those kinds of relationships, I think some of it, you know, is just really kind of common sense. I mean, first of all, I think it just takes time. You know, in, in order to build these kinds of relationships, you have to have time. You have to invest time in the relationship. So you, you just have to be, you know, willing to spend the time that it takes to, uh, to build the relationship. And I think secondly is trust, that you have to build trust between each other, that uh, you're not just, it's not just about you. You're, you're, you know, when we're having these conversations, you can believe that the other person has your best interest in their heart, not just their own, and that uh, you can trust them with that. I think um, also commitment, and I think, you know, not only commitment to each other and commitment to that relationship, but commitment to a bigger cause than just the two of you and just your relationship. So in our case, you know, we're committed to God being glorified through our lives, and we're committed to God being honored and glorified through Cornerstone Church. So that, that overrides everything. That's, that's the mutual purpose that we can always come back to. We may have a difference of opinion about how this should be done or that should be done, but ultimately we want God to be glorified and we want Cornerstone Church to be successful in terms of making an e- eternal impact in this community. And so that overrides everything. So I share just now four of what I think are barriers to uh, these kind of conversations. Did any of those stick out to you, or is there any of those, anything you want to add to that list that you see? Maybe something that, as you've known, hey, I need to have this tough conversation with Scott and a barrier that's maybe held you back that you've had to work through. Well, I think the biggest barrier that you mentioned um, is fear. I think that's the biggest thing that keeps us from having these kinds of conversations. We're afraid of what's going to happen. We're afraid of how it's going to affect the relationship. We're afraid... I mean, if it's somebody, you know, who's your boss, you know, you may get fired for having this conversation... Or you're just afraid how they're going to react. I mean, they may react in anger. Um, you know, in some cases, you may be afraid they're going to react physically. You know, so fear is, is definitely the biggest. I think another one that uh, can keep us from having these conversations is we start telling ourselves stories about what the motive is of the other person or what's going on with the other person. And when we, that may or may not be true at all, but it's the story that we've told ourselves and so I think you have to be very careful to say, you know, what, what is the story I'm telling myself? And is, how do I know whether that's true or not? You know, is this just based on what I'm feeling or do I have some fact that I can base that on? A lot of times it's based on feeling, not on fact. And we need to be willing to give the person the benefit of the doubt and be able to listen to them and hear them out and not just listen to the stories we tell ourselves. I, I'm thinking, Clovis, about a tough conversation that we had I think it was just last month. Um, we, were, uh, we were at a conference together, and uh, we had been in a, uh, a session, um, and the subject of that session was tough conversations in the workplace. And I'm going to share a little bit of my side of the story, and then you can share your side of the story, because I think we kind of experienced it in different ways. I had been feeling like there were some things that I wasn't sharing with you that I was feeling in our relationship. Um, they were the conversations I had been unwilling to have that I was afraid to have. And I had been telling myself some stories about how you would respond. And, and so I remember that there was a break at the end of that session. And, uh, and I like nervously invited you to go on a walk with me. 
And I, I said, hey, I'm sure there are some places as, uh, as your leader that I haven't been everything that I could be. And, um, you know, I said, I just, I feel like maybe, you know, there are some places I've fallen short. And that's about all I got out um, when you started talking and we kind of entered into this tough conversation, which led to us both sharing a little bit of that, that intro question. I said, what's it like to be on the other side of me? I shared a little bit of how I felt feeling in this relationship with you and some things that I had been leaving unsaid. And I was really nervous to say them. Um, but I think there have been some things that you had been wanting to say and needing to say, how did that conversation feel on the other side for you? Well, like, like you said, you know, we'd been at a conference, so we've been talking about having tough conversations. So it, you know, it, it, it lent itself to having, uh, you know, this kind of a conversation in that particular situation. There had been a, you know, it was just a small thing, but there was a, like a sign out in the lobby that needed to be fixed. And I'd started working on getting it repaired. And then I, my father passed away, so I had to leave. And, and then when I came back, I realized you'd already taken over and, and, and was addressing it. And I was like, wait a minute, I thought that was my job. And so what was happening was, you know, I was feeling like you didn't trust me to do my job, you know, and you didn't know that I had already been addressing it. So that was what was going on there was a feeling that, you know, you didn't trust me to be able to do that. And uh, so I think we just needed to talk that through. But you were feeling some things. Yeah, I was well. feeling a level of responsibility. Um, I, if anybody's a fan of the Strengths Finder, it's a personality assessment. One of my top five is responsibility. So when when something is happening under my leadership, I feel like the success of it falls on me, and I um, my name's on the line. So if that stinks, it reflects bad on me. Or if that sign is falling down, it means that Scott Savage isn't responsive enough to get it done. And, um, and it was your responsibility, and you were capable of getting it done. But I was feeling this angst in me that you didn't know. And until I shared it, you didn't recognize that. Um, and so I think it was about an hour-long conversation. We stood outside. We missed like half of the next session. Um, hope, hopefully it was some good stuff. Um, but... But it was, it was a, a time where I just said, man, if we're going to have this conversation, let's just go for it. And um, I kind of poured my heart out to you about some of the things that I had been feeling and serving in a lead pastor role for the first time. And um, you shared and kind of allayed some of the fears that I had and anxieties I had. And, um, you know, I, I know that sometimes you guys wonder what we do all week. We don't play golf all week. Um, but, but really, if, if Cornerstone's going to be a healthy place for you to call home, it has to be healthy at the top. And many times you've been in a church that was unhealthy and it started at the top. My mom served in a church growing up where the pastor and the worship director only talked on Sundays on the platform and all throughout the week communicated through their secretaries. And she told me that story when I was little and I didn't know I was going to be a pastor yet. I just said, I never want to go to a church like that. And so I really appreciate you, you wading into that conversation. And even you've done a great job teaching me how to have these conversations. Right before I, I came on staff, you guys worked through a book that was really helpful. Um, it's called Crucial Conversations. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is a book that's been out for a number of years. It's, it's not a Christian book, but the principles are biblical, biblically-based principles. And I'd encourage you, if you're wrestling with how to have tough conversations, this is a good book because it addresses a lot of the things that we've been talking about. But, um, I mean, one of the keys to be able to have this kind of conversation is safety, that you can feel safe in the conversation. 
And one of the ways, I mean, we, you know, we always feel safe. We know that, you know, uh, we can trust each other. We have, uh, again, we're looking at the, you know, what's best for this church and what's best for what's going to honor God and glorify God. And so we always are able to, you know, even if we're strongly opinionated about this, that, or the other, um, we're always going to come together and, uh, and, and move forward with it. So, I mean, I just enjoy being able to have the kind of relationship where you can be honest with one another and share things because it's, again, it's all about, you know, honoring God and, and um, seeing our, this church be successful in his, in his eyes. And so that overrides everything. And so I think that's, yeah. that's why we're willing so, to do that. So uh, I'm going to share a couple next steps in a second, um, but you didn't get a chance to hear this message because I've been out of town all week. So if there's somebody sitting here and you go, man, they need to have a tough conversation, ask somebody who's had them done well, not done well, like all of us, what's one thing you'd say to them about uh, how to wade into a tough conversation and do it well? Well, I think what you said about preparing yourself, uh, examining your own heart first and making sure that your, your heart and your motives are pure, not, not ever totally pure, but that you're, you know, as pure as they can be, mm-hmm. that this isn't something that's just about you and you wanting your way or whatever, that this is something that's bigger than that. And that what you really want out of this is, you know, a stronger relationship and you want God to be honored and glorified through it, that you have, that your, your motives are in the right place. That's good. Well, thanks Clovis for being my friend and for doing this with me. And thanks for sharing with everybody today. Appreciate it, man. I have something very special to end the service with, but before that, I want to share with you a couple of next steps. And so if you have your handout, these are on the back side, and I'd encourage you to write these down. Uh, actually, they start on the front, then go to the back. The first one is pray. Now you go, Scott, you're a pastor. Of course, you'd start with prayer. Let me just say this. As just being truthful, too often in my life, I have added prayer as my last step and not my first one. And I think a lot of you could probably nod your heads and agree. Too often prayer is our last resort rather than our first step. It's the icing on the cake versus the key ingredient from the beginning. And if the relationship you are in is that valuable and you've been as scared and uneasy to have the conversation, don't wait to just throw a prayer on top. God, hope this works out. Start with prayer. Number two, I'd encourage you to ask yourself the three questions we went over from above. Have I heard it from God? Have I checked my motives? Have I made a plan? Work through those three questions. Um, And it may take you some time to do that. Number three, I'd encourage you to make a plan to to go, okay, how am I going to wade into this conversation? What do I want to accomplish? What am I going to say? And again, that may may go against your whole personality because you're a spontaneous person. You hate having a plan. But it's a discipline enough to think about it first and value the relationship through that. And then number four, and this is the one I wanted to end with, don't delay once you're as ready as you're going to be. You are never going to be fully ready to have one of these conversations. I wasn't ready that day with Clovis. I said, this conversation is too important, and this opportunity is too big to miss. I'm just going to wade into it. And later I said, I didn't do that really well. He's like, no, you didn't. I said, but we had the conversation. And that's what was most important. Delayed obedience when God has spoken to you, is disobedience. 
And if you know in your heart of hearts today that God's telling you to have a conversation and you put it off, the biblical word for that is disobedience. God's spoken. He's told you what he wants you to do. Once you're as ready as you're going to be, step into it and go for it. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.